Good morning once again, and thanks for being with us. This past Friday and Saturday, we had our annual elders retreat where we take two days of concerted prayer and thinking and strategizing and playing rock, paper, scissors as we make decisions. It's kind of how we decide things around here. It's pretty great, actually. But uh, I, just, I just wanted to mention it where we were just here at church and we, we, we stayed here for those two days and uh, it, was, it was so good. We, we spent the first chunk of our time on Friday morning just recounting the, the numerous blessings that the Lord has given to this church. And I mean, we could have gone on for, for many more hours on that, but it was such an encouragement Sometimes you come on a Sunday morning and you see everything in place and uh, things are operating and moving and we move from the beginning to the end and you just assume, well, this this is what it is, this is how it goes. But there is so much that has gone into the the building of this church and the, the marks of God's faithfulness on this body are remarkable. And uh, if you want to hear some of those, any of us elders would be happy to share those things. But it was just so encouraging as we met together and prayed together. And I just want to publicly thank the elders who serve here at Grace for David and Brad and Brian. These men pray regularly for you. They are invested in the health and the spiritual growth of this church. And we are blessed to have these men serving us as elders. So it was a really sweet time So I'm coming off of that pretty amped up about what's going on here at the church and excited for what the Lord is going to do here in the coming season. So continue to pray for us. We're not beyond making a stupid decision, so keep us in your prayers as we lead humbly and willingly before the Lord. That's our desire. So it was a great time. Just wanted to fill you in on that. Uh, So this morning, we're getting into the second chapter of Malachi. We've been in the Minor Prophets since September, and Malachi will take us pretty much up to the springtime when we'll look at the book of Psalms for our summer psalm series. But I think it's safe to say, as we look at chapter 2, we're going to see some language here that'll back this up, but I don't think that any of us enjoys correction. (laughs) Uh, Even as we get older, we come to understand that correction is a necessary part of our growth, that we need to be brought back into alignment so that we reach the destination that we've set out for. This happens in a number of ways. Sometimes we need to correct things physically for our health. Sometimes it's a mental or emotional correction. Kids, younger people, you know that at your age right now, you receive regular correction, right? And this isn't because your parents think you're stupid or you don't know any better. It is because this is the process that God has set in place. Those who are in authority over us are tasked by God to lovingly and consistently give direction, to give correction, to keep us on course. And parents are tasked to do this with their children. And it is a blessing, even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. But it is for our good. Similar to discipline, correction is meant to keep us on track, right? And so this is what we're going to see as we get into chapter 2 this morning, that God has established himself in chapter 1 as the great king, the one who is worthy of praise and worship and honor. And as that kingly position, God gives his people correction. 
We're going to see this in this first section of chapter 2 this morning, that God sets himself as the authority over his people, and now he comes in, just like a loving parent would do, and offers correction to these priests because they are going off track. So even though correction can be difficult in the moment, even though it can be unpleasant and there's aspects of being corrected that are kind of, oh, we don't like it, it's not always comfortable to go through, it is for our good. And God has good intentions for his people. We're going to see that this morning as well. So I invite you to open your Bibles. Let's read this section. We're going to do chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So open your Bibles, Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to see God telling the priests here what they have done wrong in the past and then how they ought to have been operating, how they ought to have been leading the people. And we're going to gain some really good instruction from that. This section is addressed to the priests. You can see that even in verse 1. This command is for you, O priests. So we're going to deal with it in that context. But then when we're done, we're going to make a New Testament connection and ask the question of how this might apply to you and I. Okay, so deal with it in the context Then we're going to jump to the New Testament, and we'll make some good connections there. So follow along, if you would, in your Bibles. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let's pray as we begin. Father, once again, we gather as your people. We gather in your name. And we gather with the purpose of being taught by you through your word. What a wonderful preparation we have had as you have guided us through our worship and through the reading of your word. And now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word. And I ask that you would give grace to me in the preaching and grace to my brothers and sisters in the listening. Help us to understand, Lord, by the power of your spirit, what your word and your instruction is And would we leave here more aware of our need for a Savior, more aware of your grace in giving us a Savior, Jesus Christ, and may we all come to depend on him more and more. So Father, we come asking once again for help with the biblically informed understanding that you will 
help us. You hear us when we pray. And so we commit ourselves to you and ask that you be here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now in these nine verses that we just read together, the word command shows up twice. The word instruction shows up four times. And what this tells me is that this is somewhat of a one-sided conversation. Can it be a conversation if it's one-sided? Probably not. But you notice the difference in this section that there's no rebuttal. You remember from previous sections in chapter 1, we're going to see this again even next week, but the people often say, oh, hang on, wait a minute, how have we done that? There's none of that in this section. This is God, the Lord of hosts, the great king from chapter 1, who is giving instruction to his priests and telling them, this is where you have fallen short, this is where you need to improve, and here is how you need to do this. So notice those words, command, instruction, that are repeated throughout this section. And the point of God offering this instruction to his people is so that what he emphasized in the previous chapter, specifically verses 11 and 14 of chapter 1, that God is a great king, that his reputation, his glory, his fame are to be demonstrated in the world. And if that is going to happen, it has to start with his people. There needs to be reform to the worship of God so that his name is not despised among the world, but that people look at him and say, what a great God. So all of this instruction that we're going to see to the priests in verses 1 through 9 has the goal or the end result of God reforming the worship, bringing them back into conformity with what he has already commanded them to do so that his name will be feared in all the earth. This is a very similar theme to what we saw in the previous chapter. Now the command that God gives them when he says, this command is for you, what is he referring to? This command, what is that? It's, it's not a quotation. Oftentimes when God communicates to his people, he, he retells what he's already told them and he gives maybe an exact uh, quotation. That's not what's happening here, but it is certainly in keeping with the common covenantal language that God uses, which is blessing for obedience, consequences or cursing for disobedience. You can see how this has been set up in Deuteronomy 28. But God starts in verse 2 with this conditional language. Look at verse 2 with me. If you will not do this, if you will not do that, then I will do such and such in response to that. This is typical covenantal terms. God says if these priests do not honor him, if they do not conduct themselves in the ways they know they should, then he is going to bring upon them the curse. Okay, what's that? What is the curse? This is not referring to one specific thing like a plague or a disease or something like that. But what I believe it's referring to is God's general disposition towards his disobedient people. The curse refers to covenant consequences. When the people disobey God, when they do not conduct themselves in the way that God has required of them, he will respond in keeping with the covenant and bring the curse upon them. So it's not something specific. I believe it is God's response, in a sense, to their covenant disobedience. And notice, it says that he is going to curse their blessings. What does that mean? 
I mean, normally when we see these things side by side, they are meant to con- co- communicate like a, a contrast. We have blessings on this side, cursing on this side. So what does it mean that the blessings are cursed? Seems like kind of confusing language in some ways. The plural form of the word, I think, helps us. When it says blessings in verse 2, you see that? It is meant to be comprehensive, all-inclusive. Whatever the people have received from the Lord, whatever he has allowed them to experience in returning from exile, if you remember when we went through Haggai and Zechariah, the Lord had provided everything for them from the labor for the temple to the financial resources to build it to material resources to get things back on track. All of these things were blessings from the Lord. He had given all this to the people. And what he's communicating here is if they do not heed his word, if they do not pay attention to the law that he had put in place, then all of those things that he had given them as blessings would become to them a curse. What was formerly sweet would become bitter. And I think this reversal of of blessing is what we see here and in the following verses. The things that God had allowed them to experience were gifts, as everything is. And if the people continued to reject him and detest him, if the priests carried on in despising the offerings of God, not thinking really highly of it, then God was going to exercise his end of the covenant and allow them to experience the consequences of this kind of disobedience. What was formerly a blessing to them would become a curse. And in fact, this is already happening, right? Look at the end of verse 2. Indeed, I have already cursed them, them referring to the blessings, because you do not take it to heart. Take what to heart? What's he talking about? The commands of God, his instructions for worship, for sacrifice, for conduct, for how they should have conducted themselves and led the people. They had been laid aside by the priests. They did not take it to heart, and therefore God is starting to withdraw his covenant blessings from the people and says, listen up, this is a warning. If you do not come back to me, if you don't return to me and start acting like you should be acting, I'm going to reverse the blessings that you've had, and everything that you count dear to you will become sour, as it were. Now in verse 3, we see two ways that this covenant curse will manifest itself. Okay, first, God says he's going to rebuke their offspring. The King James says, corrupt their seed. What this refers to is their posterity, the descendants, those who are going to come after them. And What God is communicating here is that if they don't get things in order, if they don't return to him, then all of the the, the coming generations, those who are coming after these people, will not be pleasing to God. They will not experience covenant blessings, but God will cut them off. But rather than using a word like cut off or remove, God chooses to use this verb rebuke, which carries with it the sense of anger. Judgment. This is a judgment kind of word. Without the obedience of the people, the only thing that lies ahead for them and for the subsequent generations is the displeasure of God. This is part of the covenant 
curse that is coming upon them if they don't shape it up. The second part of the curse that we see in the latter part of verse 3 is meant to be especially repugnant and disgusting to the priests. Look at verse 3. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, I don't think I need to expand much on what this means. Dung is the waste of the animal. It also refers to the entrails, the intestines, all of the innard part of the animal. Now, in the sacrificial system, these things were unclean, big time, right? And so when God is communicating to his people early on how they ought to handle the sacrifices, this is the instruction he gives them. This is Leviticus 4, 11. But the skin of the bull and of all of its flesh, with its head and its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it upon a fire of wood. The best of the animal was to be given to God in sacrifice. Everything else, including the the nasty, unmentionable parts, were ceremonially unclean and were to be carried outside the camp to be dealt with in a, in a place far away from the holy presence of God. This is the symbolic nature of clean and unclean in the sacrificial system. And this is how God had commanded the priests. All of this stuff is to be carried away. In fact, if a priest even came into contact with this, there were cleansing things that had to happen before he could resume his priestly duties. And it would have been bad enough for God to say, as a judgment, you're going to come into contact with this thing. But he takes it a step further and says that he is going to smear this on their face. Now the face is one of the most intimate places of a person. It is the eye gate. It is where wisdom comes out of your mouth. It is, this is hugely significant for God to say this. And what we're seeing is that the, the ritual purity of the sacrifice. Do you know why they offered sacrifices? Why did the people have to bring a sacrifice to God? It was because they had defiled themselves with sin. So in order to pay for that sin, to be cleansed from the sin, blood had to be shed. They had to bring an offering for the cleansing of themselves from sin. And what God is saying is that rather than cleansing, the priests are going to become unclean. The system is being reversed in a sense. Same thing as the previous verse, where the blessings become cursing. Here, the cleansing becomes not a cleansing, but a dirtiness in the worst imaginable way. God is saying, this is what's going to happen. If you do not pay attention to what I am saying to you, I will reverse the effects of your sacrificial system, and you will be unclean, which to the priests, of course, is horrific. That's what's going on with this language in verse 3. Now, the things we read here are real. This isn't just symbolic language. God is saying, this is what's going to happen. But notice then, as we move on into verse 4, God tells us his purpose in the warning is not just retribution. He's not vindictive. He's not trying to just be a mean, ogre-type God. He is after restoration, He wants this covenant with Levi to be restored with the priests and subsequently to the people. Look at verse 4. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi might stand, says the Lord of hosts. God's desire for his priests 
is that they would return to him. That they would wake up from this stupor that they've been in, this distraction, and they would understand exactly what is at stake in the worship of God. What tends to happen, even with us in our worship, is that things become habitual, right? We do the same thing sometimes over and over, and before long, the novelty wears off. And it just becomes, this is something we do. And we lose the emphasis. And that had happened here. The sacrifice had become, oh brother, it's that time of the month, I guess we better bring the goat up and take care of this. They had lost it. They had lost the significance. And God is saying, look, you need to remember. You need to remember the covenant that I have made. And you need to restore the terms of this. Because there is so much more at stake here. And so his point is that in verse 4, not just that he's going to bring retribution with him and punishment with him, but that he wants to restore the covenant of Levi. Now, when we read the Old Testament, you will notice that there is no section where God makes a covenant specifically with Levi, or with any of Jacob's sons for that matter. But what God remains when he refers to this covenant with Levi, I think, is the entire Levitical priesthood. Everything that he has established for how the priests are to operate, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So we don't have a narrative portion of scripture that you can turn to and read about God making a covenant with Levi. We have that with Abraham, with Adam, with other people, but not with Levi. But what we do have is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which lays out from the mouth of God, what he expects from these priests in their service to him. So that's what he's getting at in verse 4. It's not so much a reference to a specific covenant as it is everything God had laid out, his expectation, his instruction for the priests, that as they serve the Lord of hosts, here is what you are to do. Here is the sacrifice you are to bring. Here is how you are supposed to instruct the people. But they had forgotten it. And God says, I want to bring you back to the original understanding of what you are to do in service to me. Now, I want to read verses 5 through 7 again, because what this tells us is God's original intentions. Like, it's fine to see what we shouldn't do and what the priests shouldn't do, but what should they be doing? So verses 5 to 7 give us sort of a job description. So follow along. Let's read this again. This is what God wants to restore to these priests. Verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is what ought to have been happening. This is what should have been taking place in the priesthood right now in Malachi's day. And this is what God is trying to con connect the dots in a sense. That they have done this from the beginning and God is bringing them back to the original terms of what he has established for these priests. After communicating this imminent threat in verse 3 with the covenant consequences, God now reminds them of his intentions for them, and that is life and peace. I find it very encouraging 
that God does not only point out the shortcomings of his people. He doesn't only say, um, here's where you've really screwed up. Here's where you've really missed the mark. Now figure out a way to fix it. Rather, he reiterates, he retells, he recommunicates what his expectations are. And isn't that encouraging? That God's people aren't on the hook to just make it up and say, okay, well, we're not pleasing to God, but what would be pleasing to God? I don't know. We need to figure something. No, that's not the case. God says very clearly, here, this, this is what should be happening. This is the kind of thing that you should be doing. And I just find that very encouraging. And notice in the structure of verse 5 that life and peace are things that God himself gave as a gift to these people. Life and peace. Do you see that in verse 5? My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. And of course, life here is not physical life. I mean, the priests were alive physically. They were still displeasing to God. This is spiritual vitality. A covenant of life and peace means you are serving the Lord in the way that he designed. And as a result of that design, there is peace between the priests and between God. This is his intention for his leaders of his people. He calls it a covenant of fear, which should remind us of what we saw in chapter 1. If you remember back from verse 6, God says, if I'm a master, where is my fear, my respect, my honor? Again, at the end of the chapter, verse 14, he says he's the great king, that his name will be feared among all the peoples. So this isn't kind of a, a flinching fear of, of punishment in that kind of sense. It is the reverence that is due to Almighty God. That is why so often he calls himself the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. He is communicating who he is, what his position is, so that his people come to him rightly. If God did not reveal anything about himself and he just demanded a certain kind of worship or response or sacrifice, the people could have looked at that and go, why should we do that? But as it stood, they couldn't say that because God had revealed to them exactly who he was. And he says, this covenant that I established was life and peace and reverence, awe, fear, honor. That is what God is due. And that is what he will receive. Now, I, another thing that is really important here, I think, to point out is that God is going back to the beginning now, you know, look at the past tense of all these things that he gave them to him and, and this is what it was and this is what he did. This is past. He's, he's going back to the establishment of this covenant to point out what we're going to get to in the next chapter that God does not change. He goes back to the beginning to remind his people this is nothing new. I've told you this before. My purposes, my methods, my ways of leading you as a people have not changed. He's going to say that in chapter 3. The Lord your God does not change. And I think it's so important for us to understand that God's purposes in the world have been and will be forever the same. 
He is after his own glory. He is after his own recognition. He is passionate that people understand who he is and respond to him rightly. And this is not because God is some sort of egomaniac. It is not because he is full of pride and self-obsessed. Do you know why God is so passionate about his own glory? Because he understands something we forget. He understands that God Almighty is the only thing that will satisfy you. The only thing. And if God communicates himself to be weak and less than and insignificant, if he tolerates subpar sacrifices, that doesn't make him look great and you aren't satisfied in a God like that. But as it is, God promotes and demonstrates and communicates his power and his glory and his might. Do you remember what we looked at in Isaiah, what was that, three weeks ago? When we saw all of those texts about the magnificence and the power and the works of God, that is what he is after in the world because he wants you satisfied in him. So this self-promotion of God is not as a human self-promotion. We do this selfishly, right? We promote ourselves so that we look good, so that we have a good reputation, so that people like us, whatever the case may be, that's not what it with God. He does not operate out of selfish motives in the human sense. But his desire to be glorified and honored is actually a desire for your good and your satisfaction in him. So when we read about God being passionate for his own glory... This is really good news for us. We'll develop this more as we get through the chapter. So, verse 5 deals with how the priests relate to God. And now in verses 6 through 9, we see how the priests relate to God's people. What were they supposed to be doing? What was the requirement for them as they serve in their priestly ministry? I think this can be summed up in one word, instruction. At least from this text. You notice that four times in these last four verses we see the word instruction. And I think verse 7 becomes sort of a thesis for this whole section. Look at verse 7 with me. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests in this context are not only mediators... They're not only standing between God's people and his holy presence, but they are communicating something. They are passing along a message. They are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. And notice the word should in verse 7, or ought to. We see that twice there. This is the primary responsibility of the priest. His mouth ought to have been a source for truth and wisdom and encouragement he ought to have guarded the instruction. You see that there? He should guard knowledge. What does that mean? Well, it means that the priest should so understand the word of God, he should be so familiar with the law of God that when people come into the temple and they bring substandard sacrifices, the priest, in upholding the law of God, should have said, no way, Jose, you are not bringing that lame thing in here. He should have guarded the knowledge of God and refused those sacrifices, but the priest forgot. 
They forgot the law of God. They didn't guard it. Their lips didn't communicate knowledge. They let things slide. And this is the whole reason for God's anger against them. They should have remembered the law of God and guarded that knowledge. But they didn't. Look at verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it, it doesn't look like this so much in English as it does in other places, but this phrase, turned aside, is really weighty. This is something that is so serious. Ever since the beginning of the history of redemption, when God communicates to his people, he has told them time and time again, do not turn aside, do not turn aside, do not turn aside for my instruction. Let me just give you two examples because I want you to feel the weight of these two words. It's hugely significant. Deuteronomy 5, 12, 32, sorry, 532. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you. God tells Joshua something very similar. Joshua 1, 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it. All, I mean, I, I could have cited dozens of texts like this, that God instructs his people, don't turn away, don't turn away, pay attention. So we come back to Malachi 2, and we see that God tells the priests, you have turned aside, that is hugely significant, and it is serious. This turning aside signals spiritual neglect. It's not just that they ignored it for a time. This is huge. That they have turned aside from the law of God. This carries great weight. And in turning away from the command of God, in neglecting his law and his requirements, the priests have corrupted the covenant. This is big. Lastly, verse 9. God gives a proportionate response to the unfaithfulness of his people. You can see that in, that in verse 9 in the words, in as much as, which is kind of like you do this over here, then this is going to happen. That's what in as much as, meaning as the priests have treated God, so God will treat them. It's kind of a layman's translation there. Okay, their fate is going to be proportionate to their sin. This judgment is proportionate in its content, in what it is, but notice also that it's proportionate in its display. This is going to be public. You remember from chapter 1, we made a big deal out of the fact that there is a connection between the worship of God and his public display of his own glory. Remember this? We belabored this for almost two weeks. So there's public things at stake here. So God says, your punishment, your consequence is going to be public just as my defamation was public. You see at the end of verse 9, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Which tells us, it's not that God is after embarrassment. He's not bringing this to light so that it's some kind of red-faced thing. This is proportion. This is justice in as much as. So that's the situation in verses 1 through 9. That is the failure of the priests 
and the subsequent judgment that will fall if they do not repent and turn to the Lord and remember his law and worship him rightly. But what does that have to do with you and me? I titled the message this morning, This Command is for You. Is it? What do you and I have to do with the Levitical priesthood from 500 B.C.? A lot. <laughs> Amen, you're dismissed. Now let me explain myself. I want to jump to the New Testament. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So I want you to see this in the text. I'm not making this up. 1 Peter chapter 2 explains how you and I can apply this text and learn from this text and be encouraged and challenged from this text in Malachi. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter is talking to the church, those in the New Covenant era, and this is what he says, 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now what Peter is getting at is what we refer to as the priesthood of all believers. In the new covenant, all of God's people, all those washed by the blood of Jesus, have the responsibility to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. We are all, in some senses, priests. Peter calls us a holy priesthood. Only now, <laughs> this is so good, the thing that makes our sacrifices acceptable to God is not our ability to keep the law. It is not our ability to accept or refuse unclean or clean sacrifices. The thing that makes us acceptable to God is Christ. He is the one who has washed us clean, and now as we bring a sacrifice to the Lord, whether that be your time, your treasures, your abilities, your resources, your schedule, whatever it is, it is made acceptable to God through Christ, because he is the high priest that we serve under. So we see this connection about the sacrifice, about offering, but what about the reputation of God? When we read Malachi 2, we see this really clear connection between the sacrifices of God's people and God's public, global fame. What about that? Do we still have obligation there? Keep going. Peter addresses this. It's almost like he knew the Old Testament. This is uncanny. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Here he tells us what that means. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are we to do as a holy priesthood to God now? Proclaim his excellency. Declare to the world how great he is. Your life in Christ, if you are a Christian, your life in Christ has been designed with great intentionality that you would be a mirror 
that reflects the glory of God out of your life to a watching world. That is what we do. You see both of these aspects here in 1 Peter. Isn't that great? So when we come back to Malachi and we say, okay, look at all this instruction for the priests. I'm not a Levite. I don't function in this capacity. But we come to the New Testament and we connect this with Christ and we see that all of us have a responsibility. Paul tells the Corinthians that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us are being built into a holy dwelling place for God. If we are the temple of God, then the way we serve God with your life, with your body, with your resources is important. You might not go to a physical temple to serve as a priest, but believe you me, we serve as priests. This is what God has called us to, to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I close with this one question. How does your life proclaim the excellency of God? How does your life communicate to everyone around you that you belong to him? Just think about that. I'm not, I'm not going to give a bunch of examples. You know. But it is the question that we must deal with coming out of this text and coming out of 1 Peter. How does your life proclaim the excellency of God? And I pray that we will seek the Lord as to how to do this in a way that draws attention to him, not to us, so that he is magnified in every part of our life. Let's pray. Father, this is a this is a big task and it feels it feels beyond what we are able to do. Each of us knows our own heart, we know our proclivity towards sin, we know the ways that we are tempted and To think about our life being an acceptable offering to you is laughable at times because of our sinful nature. And yet, and yet Christ makes us acceptable to you by the sacrifice of his body. The very thing that we will celebrate in just a couple of moments is the means by which we are purified to service as your priests. Oh God, help us. Help us to understand that what you call us to, you also enable us to do. And so we are not on the hook here to come up with strategies and strength, but we are simply to depend upon you. Father, give us conviction by your spirit. Help us to be able to answer this question, how? How do our lives reflect the greatness and the glory of God? Because that's what we're designed to do. Father, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of your own possession that we would proclaim your excellency. So help us to do that. The world sits in darkness and you are light So help us to reflect that light to the world around us, Lord. Give us strength 
and conviction and encouragement to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone around us. And I pray for each one here in the hearing of my voice that we would reflect your greatness to the world around us, God. Enable us by your spirit to proclaim the excellencies of you. This is not something we can do on our own, God. You must equip us for this, so please do it and give us strength to be pleasing to you. Thank you, Father. And I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.